Welcome to another issue of the Cool Tools Show and Tell. My guest this week is Diego Rodriguez. And Diego, would you introduce yourself to us? Yeah, you bet, Kevin. It's great to be here. So uh, I like to think of myself as someone who loves bringing cool stuff to life and new stuff to life and also helping other people do the same. On the former, I've done everything from being an R&D engineer at Hewlett Packard back in the glory days when Bill and Dave were still alive. I'm really proud of that job. I was a partner at the design firm IDEO for a long, long, long time, building lots of great stuff there. And most recently, I was the chief product and design officer at Intuit, where I was actually building software experiences using some pretty gnarly AI. So that was super interesting. Wow. And on the helping other people do the same, front i was part of the founding faculty at the stanford d school mm -hmm. and i still do a lot of work at harvard and harvard business school and also hang out at boise state university if you have to um, give yourself a noun do you are you kind of see yourself as a designer is that sort of your main thing or helper teacher um i would say i'm a design engineer okay and uh and it both in kind of philosophy of life and outlook and I see engineering and building things as a team sport. So embedded in that for me is this, this notion of coaching and teaching too. So it's all in there. Okay, well, great. Well, welcome to Cool Tools. Um, I know from my past experience with you that you always have some great picks, um, stuff to share. So tell us one of your favorite Cool Tools these days. Yeah, so I tried to pick things that were um, meaningful to me in different ways, but also that would appeal to all the senses. So we'll see how that goes. Um, the first thing I wanna talk about is this little device, which a good friend of mine just gifted to me a few weeks ago, and it's called the Timber Mountain Bike Bell. Mountain really Bike cool. Bell, okay. Yeah, so you, the idea is you, it has a, there's two versions of it. There's a bolt-on version, and then there's this quick release version with a rubber strap. And basically you mount it to the handlebars, and you pull this thing over and it attaches. Um, you'll notice it's not making any sound right now and it doesn't have like a lever or a bell uh, thing to push uh -huh. on it. And what I love about this is it's actually designed in a way that flips the paradigm of how mountain, uh, not just mountain bike bells, but any bike bell works. And um, on my road bike, I also have a bell because I live next to the Stanford campus and you know, I, I feel like I've got to be a considerate bicyclist. So you, you ring it all the time. But when you're not ringing it, when you go over bumps, you can kind of hear it pinging faintly. And it always bothers me that oh, it's, it's ringing when I don't want it to ring. This thing uh, flips the paradigm because it's absolutely silent. There's nothing you can do to get it to ring until you flip this thing down. Uh, and then it becomes a perpetual ringing device. I see. And the point of view behind this is that when you're riding on tracks up in the mountains, you want to be ringing so that other bicyclists and more importantly, hikers can hear you coming. Right. And right. I would also add to that probably mountain lions. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's interesting because when I first got it, I thought, I don't know if I want to be riding with this bell on, but it, it ends up being this kind of soothing sound because the amplitude, um, if you're just riding on level terrain without many bumps, it's a very low amplitude ringing kind of like this because it just reacts to the torque pulses from your pedals. When you hit a bump, it gets really loud. 
Uh, and I think when you go around corners, it leans a little bit. So it's just a really clever device. And I've just come to really admire its simplicity and its ingenuity as well. I, I would say that w whether you use this one, which is a great one for a mountain bike or a regular um, bell on a you know, street cruiser, I'm a, I'm a big believer in bells. And, and you really should have a bell on your bike if you are biking around anywhere people are, because it is, it is common courtesy to have bells. And I, I, more people should have them than, than do. I agree. And my wife and I were talking about this uh, last night, actually. Um, we used to do kind of cabin to cabin hiking up in places where there are a lot of bears and we would do a lot of things to make noise as you know singing obviously talking and clapping but um this thing would be pretty good just for kind of hiking as well and it, again it's pre it's definitely there but it's uh i think they've done a great job of tuning the bell because it's not an irritating sound it's just kinda, okay it's just kind of nice so, so so you could maybe attach it to your backpack Exactly. Exactly. And you know, it's 25 bucks. So it's one, it's, uh, it's really a good deal, I think right, for right. what it is. Pretty so, cool. so one, it's a kind of a well-tuned bell that has an off switch. Yes. That's, that would be the, the, the engineering statement for what this thing is. It's, right. it's a bell with an on and off switch. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And that's that switch. Like, you get a little bit of movement in that plane, but in this plane where it actually hangs, yeah. done, it's really, really well engineered, really, really nicely done. And again, what's the name of it? It's Timber. Timber. Which I think is a nice play on words. Yeah. You know, timber, uh, watch out, but also uh, Tambra or Timbra, right? Uh -huh. Which is a musical term. I think it's really nice. Uh-huh. Well, great. Pretty cool. That's, that's a lovely find. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you have another cool tool to share with us. I do. I do. Um, this one took some time this morning to clean up because it's, <laughs> it's like on the front lines every day in the household, but. <sighs> oh, instant okay. pot, instant pot, instant pot. So it's a pressure cooker, right? With a, with an LCD touchpad on the front basically. But I love it because when I think about designing products, I look at things and I always wonder why things end up the way they do and why some things are really great and some things aren't so great. And to me, um, it all comes down to this fundamental question that I think teams producing things should be asking themselves. And it doesn't really matter if you're building a physical device like this or, you know, throwing a party or creating a service experience or maybe even writing a book or shooting a movie. And the question you should be asking yourself is how do we want people to feel after they use this or even while they're using it in the case yeah. of the instant pot, because of course, one of the major features of it is that you can set the timer. I don't know plugged in. You can set it and walk away, which is fantastic. Right. And it's electric. And if you've ever used a pressure cooker on a stove, you know that a, you don't walk away from it and you certainly can't set it on a timer. And I, always we we had a pressure cooker for a long time but i never used it and i guess that's a little embarrassing as a mechanical engineer to say but i was scared of the damn thing you know <laughs> maybe because i'd studied steam and pressure boilers and locomotives and nuclear reactors and all those things but i felt like geez, there's so many ways i could screw this up and obviously they have a pressure relief valve but always had this nagging feeling that i would blow myself up and 
you don't you don't do that with an instant pot and so it's pretty much idiot proof uh, right. so it's good for someone like me and to me that that gets back to that question is how do you want people to feel while they're using it well i feel really confident when i'm using it and uh and confident of the process it's going to be safe but also it, it works the food that comes out of it is actually really really good what kinds of things do you cook with it oh my family does tons of things in it um a lot of uh soups um there's a great macaroni and cheese recipe that we use for it mm -hmm. i mean there's a, there's a if, if you go to if you, if you google it there's tons of cookbooks about instant pot so i think my sense is you can cook just about anything in it i don't know if everything you cook in it is really good but um one thing that i like to cook in it personally is uh garbanzo beans or chickpeas mm -hmm. the reason for that is that uh, my wife is half Armenian, mm -hmm. so her family is Armenian via Syria, the, the Armenian genocide and diaspora, Syria, and then Lebanon. So they have this fantastic hummus recipe mm -hmm. that's been passed down through the family. And actually, my daughter, my teenage daughter, has a has a, a, a food blog called A Thousand One Culinary Adventures, and she has the recipe on there. So I always open up my phone, look at the recipe, and uh, I cook the chickpeas in here. And then I make the hummus and it's still warm, which just completely transforms it from whatever you get in the store-bought version. It's like another, it's another food. It's just ethereal when it's nice and warm. It's really awesome. That's great. Yeah. So the Instant Pot is, um, has quite a following and um, the interface is um, yeah. really, really good. And um, as you said, it's kind of idiot proof because you push a couple of buttons that almost anybody doesn't even need to read the manual and you're, you're off and running. Yeah. I would say there's a little bit of a learning curve because it's, it's one of those things where um, I think it was John Mida said, you know, education goes a long way. And when you're thinking about simplicity, so it's simple. I found, I never read a manual, but I did have my wife tell me how to use it because <laughs> she, you know, she, she reads manuals, which is an ama amazing trait of hers. But she taught me in five minutes, and then I can use it. So yeah, it's really well designed. And from a mechanical engineering standpoint, I mean, everything's like that lock. You know, it's locked. You know, it's open. And um, the materials are really, really good. I mean, this is good quality stainless steel. The screws inside are stainless steel. I'm kind of analyzing while looking at it. it has this great silicone seal inside. That's compared to other pressure cookers mm -hmm. I've had. This thing is built to last. I mean, this is, I wouldn't say it's military grade, whatever that means, mm -hmm. but this thing is really, really, really well done as a, as a physical product. And, and it's, a, it's what a, what a bargain. I mean, that you can buy one of these for around a hundred bucks just still blows my mind. Yeah. Pretty cool. Well, fabulous. Thank you for that. Um, so Diego, what's a third uh, cool tool that you um, are really excited by? Oh man, this, this is probably my favorite. I mean, when you asked me to come on, this, yeah. my, my mind immediately went to, oh, I get to demo this thing. <laughs> so this is my Fisker's pruning oh, stick. Oh, wow. And so I just need to describe this to somebody who may be listening, which is a yeah. long pole. Yep. I'm surprised you can even fit it into your room um, that has a slicing scissor-like end on it. It's and for pruning tree branches, right? Exactly. And it turns out you can cut a lot of other things with it too. Um, 
And it actually has a rotary head at the top, meaning that the uh, that those printing shears are at the at an end of it, but you can actually rotate it through about 210 degrees, which I don't know why you would go beyond the horizontal, but if you're trying to get into a really tricky spot, you can turn it and then there's a nice over center locking mechanism uh -huh, there, uh -huh. just flip it. And then you can flip it back. I almost never do that because it's so, so maneuverable and light anyway, but. Um, so what, me, are the, what are the advantages of this complicated uh, prune? One is that you can reach places that a, like a small pruning shears would never be able to reach like the top of the tree. Yes. That's one advantage for sure. It, it has a ton of mechanical advantage built into it too. I mean, I, don't, I, I wouldn't stick my finger in there, but this thing, I mean, I, what you don't see is I'm displacing the core that pulls it by what, 18 inches. And then you can see it's just slowly moving. So it actually has a huge amount of mechanical advantage, meaning force, but also um, when you're using it, it feels like you've got fingers in the sense that I can actually use it to grab things and move them. So let's say I have a couple lemon trees in my backyard. I'll trim a branch high up in the canopy and then lemon trees are, are thorny beast and pretty, you know, wild inside. So it always, always snags on other branches. I think, and then after I've sliced it, I can go back in and just kind of like grab it and pull it out instead of having to go up there and manually grab it out with my hand because you don't want dried branches sitting around. Um, but the other thing that it's interesting that you say, you know, it is more complicated than garden shears, but I think this is such a great example of something that's, it's really simple and it's incredibly reliable and durable. I've had this for 17 years now. Um, and I'm a little embarrassed. If you look at the chain, uh, I haven't maintained it very well. It's a yeah. little gnarly and rusty up in there. But uh, man, it's so lightweight and durable and useful. I use it all the time, but it has some really cool features to it. So there's kind of three modes for using it. One is I'm right-handed, so I usually hold it in my left hand and I can pull on this to actuate the end piece. Mm -hmm. I can also, it also has a string. So if I'm kind of a little higher up, I can pull on the string and get the full stroke that way. But then, if I'm really pushing high up, I can loosen this. And it also pulls from the bottom here. Oh, wow. That is so cool. So I can, I can really get, I mean, I can get the stuff pretty high up. And if you double it with a ladder, you can really go. They make another version, which has a telescoping rod. Uh, I don't have that, uh, mm -hmm. but I've thought about getting it, but just I don't like having too much stuff around the house. Right, right. The other thing that they've done is it has a fail safe built into it which is um the, the head actually comes off if you're uh, if you're hung up on something or it gets stuck it's attached by the cord the actuator cord it's a press fit um and i at first i thought this was a bug but it, there's certain circumstances where the blade will get hung up on something maybe you you kind of bit off more than you can chew so to speak and it gets stuck and you want to get it released and you're kind of stuck with the bar. And what you can do is just pull, pull, pull. This thing will kind of break off. And then this thing is flapping in the wind and it tends to release itself that way too. It also means if this thing ever breaks, you can buy this as a separate module from Fiskars and keep the body of the pole, which yeah. is just great. So they didn't, it's not designed for obsolescence. It's a, 
this is my faithful companion, man. I mean, I, I hope I hope it lasts me another decade or two because it's just such a great product. Right. I love it. And that head, that kind of um, oh, it's called kind of a levered head, is yeah. actually present on their short version of the shears that they have. Ah, I didn't know that. Yes, and um, we have a shears version as well, which um, is incredibly. I mean, I can go through a three-inch branch without like butter just because it is this geared levered head at the at the head of it even though they were kind of a short um shears and so that compounding function is is present in the short version as well and i recommend those interesting i'll have to check that out yeah and i i just i in general i like fisker's products i've only had one that's ever broken on me and i, I was abusing the blade yeah. on it um but they're, I wouldn't say they're over-engineered because they're not heavy and they're not bulky and they're not, uh, there's not gratuitous elements to it, but they're well-engineered. Meaning, I mean, this return spring doesn't show any signs of fatigue. And it's, again, like I said, it's 17 years old and these things are notorious for breaking if they're not engineered and specified correctly. So I'm a, I'm a believer in Fiskars. I really dig their stuff. Really, right. really nicely done. And this is uh, we might call a um, pole pruner. They call it yes. They call it a, a a pruning stick with a K at the end and no C. That's their trade name for it. But okay. yeah, I would call it a pole pruner. Um, if you go to their website, it's kind of fun. They have some products beyond this, which have big saws at the end. I mean, <laughs> they look they start to look like halberds and things you'd find in some. German medieval museum. I mean, really, really, really nasty stuff, but for getting it even higher and being able to saw, but um, this is the, uh, I would call this kind of like, this is their Honda Accord. It, it does everything and I'm not sure why you'd want anything else. Right, right, right. It's really, really awesome. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's for basically for pruning trees. And if you have trees, they need to be pruned every now and then. There's no way around them. Yeah for their own health. And, uh, and, uh, it's, it's actually, it's a great activity. It's, you have to see the forest for the trees. You need to see the tree and then get up into it and then back out and see the tree. So it's a great exercise. It's not something you want to rush. And it's, uh, it's something you do through time too. You know, you right. anticipate, how do I want it to look in six months or in five years and right. sniff there and see what happens. It's pretty right. cool. Well, great. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you. The first yeah. year's, Pruning stick. With a K. So um, your fourth uh, pick. My fourth pick is, is, uh, is an axe. Okay. So I'm gonna, it's, it's big. I'm going to pull it out in a minute. <laughs> but uh, um, I just wanted to editorialize at this point. If you haven't gone through this process, you learn a lot about your life and yourself by actually trying to figure out which four things you want to talk about and why. And you start making all these connections across things. The axe I'm going to show you is actually, it's the oldest thing I own. It's actually older than me. Wow. It's from 1968. Uh, I looked at the serial number. Um, and then I started thinking, well, how many things do I own that are that old? And, and, and why don't I own more things that are that old? Um, my house is almost that old, but I kind of put that in a different category. Um, 68, thought, that's interesting. I'm trying to think. 
what is what's the oldest tool that I I think I did get. Well, I've got some from my dad, but I have picked up garage sale, you know, wrenches and things that I'm sure are probably close to that age. Um, yeah. But a axe could. Yeah, that would be a good find. So how did you come? Yeah. Up, how did you uh, get it? How did you come to have it? The, I got it during high school. Um, but, you know, what it made me realize is when I was thinking about what are the what's the oldest thing? that I, or the thing I've had in continuous possession for my whole life. And I'm cheating a little bit. This isn't a tool and it's a fifth thing, but I still have it. It's this Porsche 917 matchbox. (laughs) It's actually a Corgi. Oh my gosh. I can't believe that's uh, that's like Ford versus Chevy. You don't mix matchbox and Corgi. Um, And uh, it's pretty cool. That lifts up. You can see the flat 12 in there. And you can see this thing's been, this thing been used, man. Uh, and I got this in Madrid as a boy. Um, my, uh, my family's from Spain. Um, my mother's family was living in Madrid when I was a young boy. So we used to go and visit quite a bit. And when I would go there, my great grandmother would always walk me to Woolworths in Madrid and buy me a present to welcome me to Spain. We'd go in the summertime. And she bought this for me. I don't know how old I was. I'm, I'm thinking three. I don't know. Um, I mean, this is, this is an early, late 60s, early 70s Porsche, but I would use it in the, uh, we, my grandparents lived in an apartment building in a flat like most people in Spain do. And there was a nice uh, dirt playground little park in front of their building. My dad would take me down, down there probably to get out of everybody's hair. And, uh, and go play. And I would play with this thing in the dirt. And um, I lost it for a long time. But then a few years ago, I found it in my parents' house and, and took it out. And I put it in a little display case in my, my own home. And then I, was, I took a trip to Spain a few years ago and was going to a business dinner. And before the trip, I wanted to see where it was. And I saw and I realized, oh, that looks interesting on Google Maps. And, and all these memories started flooding back. And I realized that the restaurant was in the ground floor of the apartment building where my grandparents used to live which i hadn't been to for 45 years and Uh so i brought this car on the trip and took it to the park and took some photos of myself (laughs) with it unfortunately there's a bunch of spanish teenagers there like smoking cigarettes the park wasn't nearly as nice as i thought it was and they were just looking at me like who's this bald guy taking photos himself with selfies with a car but whatever anyway i just want to this is a great exercise to do. Thank you for gifting it with me. Let me, yeah. let me get my ax out with that. Sure, but sure. yeah, so this is circa 1973. This is my ax. <laughs> Your ax? So jazz musicians call their hordes their ax. Oh. As it turns out. So the, I wanted to, you know, a little play on the Fiskars thing, more gardening implements. But <laughs> think of this as... Um, a steampunk machine for converting air pressure into sound. Like yeah. back to the back to what's the engineering analysis of this thing invented by the great Adolf Sachs, a Belgian who moved to Paris. Um, if you want to do something really, really cool, Google Adolf Sachs and look at his portfolio of instruments that he invented. 
Huh. The sax, the saxophone was actually invented fairly late in his career. He was experimenting with all sorts of brass instruments and weird woodwind uh-huh. instruments um, that I guess you could say kind of led up to the saxophone. But he has a, like he has a six valve trombone. I mean, most valves don't have any trombones, and if they, have, I mean, most trombones uh-huh. don't have any valves. Sorry, I'm getting a little excited. Uh, And if they do have valves, they have three. He made one with six, which I I would love to see a video of people playing them. And there's also something called a sax horn, which Uh looks like a miniature tuba. And he made some trumpets with um, valve actuators that look like the desmodromic valve gear you'd see on a Ducati. Like, what an amazing inventive guy. And so... uh, but yeah, this is my saxophone. I got it when I was around 16. This is actually a uh, a brand. I'll try and hold it up here. It's a little corroded. Uh-huh. It's called Selmer or Henri Selmer Paris because they're made in Paris. And this particular model, if you see the engraving here right there, it says Mark VI, Roman numerals. Right. And the Mark VI, um, it's not not in production anymore. It's a pretty famous model of saxophone. And it's interesting because um, I guess the closest thing I can equate it to would be like a Porsche 356 or maybe an early Porsche 911 in that the legend and mystique around them is far greater than the substance of the actual product. Uh Like it's a good saxophone. If you Google it or read about them, people say, oh, it's the best saxophone ever. Uh, and nothing can approach a, a Mark VI. Um, for people believe that they sound better, play better. Um, and some of that is true. I think, I mean, they made several hundred thousand of them, I believe. This is number, in the Selmer's history, Selmer is interesting too. They put a serial number on every product they make in sequential order. Uh, so you know exactly where where it was. This is this is number uh, one hundred fifty six thousand one hundred forty four. But um, it is very much like a Porsche three fifty six in that there was tooling involved in making it. I mean that's why I call it a steampunk product because if you look at it, there's all these metal parts. That yeah, I know. I was just thinking. I'd never really thought about the fact that these are all probably made by hand in a certain sense. Uh, yes, and like like if you had to have the assignment to make one of these, what you'd have to do it would be astounding. Yes, there's a there's a lot of tooling that happens in there, and they're they're like so. I'm going to just show you some of the valve actuation. There's two valves down at the bottom here, yeah. uh, which I'll, you can see them moving. Those are yeah. the big daddies of this. When you close those down, those that plays the lowest note that the saxophone can play because you're closing the entire air column. Right, right. right. It's the air column vibrating that makes the sound. But to actuate those, I'm actually moving my pinky finger up here. Yeah, yeah. So, so these mechanisms, and I mean, there. I'll show you a little part up here if I can too. There's all sorts of little springs. There's a little, uh-huh. there it is. There's a little cantilevered blue yeah. steel spring there. Right. There's, cork pads in it um, all over it to dampen the sound felt pads one of them i just realized last night one of mine has fallen off so instead of getting this sound when i move a key i'm getting this sound yeah not good 
And then the actual ceiling uh, surface, if you look inside of the pads, you can see yeah. their leather down there yeah, yeah. inside. Um, but like a Porsche 356, there is some tooling. So they're all the same, but everyone's different. And um, one of the hard things about saxophones is that, again, the, the, the sound comes from the air tube, right? The air column. And the, the keys are fixed. I, I mean, so if, if this hole here isn't in quite the right place, even off by a millimeter or half a millimeter, it's gonna be a little out of tune. And so the whole saxophone can end up being out of tune. And you almost, if you ever buy a saxophone, I'd give two pieces of advice, which is A, you have to go play the saxophone. Mm -hmm. Actually, I give three pieces of advice. <laughs> you have to go play it. Mm -hmm. you, you can't mail order a saxophone because there's enough variability in them, especially the old ones, that uh, they'll be completely different. The same way you can't just go buy an old Porsche, you have to drive it because they're all made by hand and they're very variable. The second thing is that um, the, the surface of them really corrodes over time. Uh, just due to ambient moisture, if you're not careful, your hand oils, can wear the finish off. I've never had that problem personally. And then you can never leave them wet when you, after you've played them, because you're, you're blowing air through it, which condenses a lot of moisture. Yeah, right. but, be, but the interesting thing about that is there's a temptation when buying a used one to find one with the best finish possible. But actually, um, ironically, you kind of want to find one where a lot of the surface finish has been worn off because that's an indication it's a good horn and somebody's played it a lot and didn't want to <laughs> give it up. All right. So you want an axe with handle has been been well used, not with a shiny new handle. That's a that's a sign that something's wrong. Wow. Uh, the cool. The other cool thing about saxophones, people don't know this, uh, is they actually make a sound when you. Uh, I don't know if I can get it with here. Can you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. And the the tuning is actually different depending which, which is kind of cool. Anyway, the third thing I would say if you want to buy a saxophone. Just buy a Japanese one, <laughs> buy a Yamaha or a Yanagasawa, a new one, if you can afford a new one, because it's a, uh, it's Toyota production system. Uh -huh. Like they build them perfectly. And so you don't end up with the tuning problems that are the old ones have. It's again, it's like, it's like buying a new Honda Accord versus buying some old Porsche 356 the purists might argue all oh, some of the soul is gone uh, you know it doesn't have the mystique but if you actually want to play and <laughs> and not have a and not having excuses of like oh i can't hit that note because the the horn just won't do it like no you can't hit it because you need to practice more like uh -huh. get a japanese saxophone they're they're by far the best and the workmanship is just beautiful on them too so that's kind of my uh that's my story of my axe but 1968 I've had it, it was only 18 years old when I got it, which now, which blows my mind. So I, I've had it for a, a long, long time. I, I love it. It's just a do delightful. You still, do you still play it? Do you still play it? I do still play. Um, not as much as I used to. I, I played a lot. I mean, all I did in high school was play saxophone and I played in college, uh, in the, in the jazz band in, co in uh, college. Afterwards, living in apartments made it a lot harder. Mm -hmm. just because you you bug the you bug everybody everybody knows you have a saxophone <laughs> if you live in an apartment but uh i'm i'm starting to play it more actually and i'm uh, 
relearning all my scales and things, which has been really fun as an intellectual challenge. Well, that's really what a treat. Uh, I knew nothing about saxophones, and now I'm very interested. I don't couldn't possibly play one, but just to have it as an artifact would be an amazing. I mean, just just looking at the as you said the steampunk um, ornate plumbing that's all necessary to make this thing work is just astounding. Yeah, and it's it's kind of like um, like anything else in life. The more you know, the more you know, and you get really deep into it. The uh, they're really the other thing is they're modular. Adolf Sachs was he knew what he was doing. I think um, a lot of a lot of what makes them variable is actually interestingly in in the neck which comes off um there's good necks and bad necks even though they're all theoretically the same so you could have a good horn um and a bad neck or a good neck so you can actually go buy new necks that'll fit on a summer mark six and they're uh the whole cottage industry around this stuff and they're optimized for different sounds um that's the other interesting thing is you the physics of it would say you could make this out of plastic fiberglass there there are and there were fiberglass plastic saxophones charlie parker played one uh on occasion um people have all sorts of theories about the right plating to put on these so they're made out of brass and this one just has what you would call a lacquer finish on it Uh and that's why it's corroding but you can pay a lot more money to have them be silver plated and then the top of the line ones are gold plated and people (laughs) will say it changes the sound. And in some cases it does seem to change the sound, but the physics of it tells you it, it doesn't matter what material it is. It's just an air column, but um, you can, uh, you can go really deep. And then the other thing is the mouthpiece is not part of the saxophone. It's something you have to actually have to buy. So you can see, I have a read on it. Yeah. Yeah. This is why is a saxophone woodwind or brass, it's both, because it's Adolf Sachs. He was a genius. Um, there's a whole, uh, what kind of reed to use? And I had a saxophone teacher, Vince Gnoyak, uh, if he ever listens to this, who taught me how to shave them down and do special things with them. Vince was one of the best teachers I've ever had in my life. And then uh, the mouthpiece, this is a Meyer Gold mouthpiece that I've had since I was 17. It didn't come with the saxophone. Um, and these are investment cast and they have like a hard rubber surface. So you don't, you know, wreck your teeth. This one is gold plated, but I think it's stainless. No, it's just steel underneath, Huh? but they're hand, then they're machined. And, but, um, the aerodynamics of the inside of one of these is one of those areas too, where, uh, if you get interested in this, look on Instagram and just put in uh, the term Autolink, O-T-T-O-L-I-N-K. Autolink is a kind of mouthpiece and you'll see raging arguments about, <laughs> do I use this mouthpiece on this or this and what kind of ramp and all these ratios and numbers. So yeah. it's a it's an amazing product and I'm, I'm so thankful that Adolf Sachs invented it because it's given me a lot of joy and uh, one of those things where I'm not sure, like you said, I'm not sure it's the 21st century mind could conceive of such a bizarre device, let alone well, ma- manufacture just, it. Just the, just the analog construction, it would kind of remind me of the inside of um, film cameras. I mean, they have, uh, there's uh, watches don't have anything compared to 
you know, a state-of-the-art Nikon at its peak, what was going on inside and all the levers and pins and moving parts was just unbelievable. Yes. Moving that shutter in two pieces down at this precise speed. It's astounding what was going on. And that saxophone reminds me a little bit of that where there's far more going on than, than it looks from afar. Yeah. I, I think they're great examples of how constraints are really liberating and yeah. encourage creativity. My, uh, my uncle is a photographer and collects old cameras and he has uh, a bunch of robot cameras, the brand robot. And uh, he shows me the mechanisms in these things. And it's just like, from the from the 30s and the 20s who who came up with that what yeah, genius yeah. developed that because they had no access to uh to semiconductors or right. to software right and uh yeah, yeah. and i i love going to vintage car racing events too because you look spend spend 30 minutes looking at a carburetor on, on an old bugatti and you'll think oh <laughs> wow yeah how, how did they do that and by the way they didn't have cad and all they had was a lathe and a, maybe a milling machine and a drill press. Phenomenal well, stuff. It's really fabulous. So, so Diego, in the remaining minutes, is there something that you have been um, working on a project of your own or something you want to share, uh, some, something you're excited by to um, let us know about? Yeah, I, I kind of have a portfolio thing going on right now. So I have my fingers in a lot of different pies. Um, I'm involved in a few startups more in an advisory role. So, uh, and they're kind of in top secret mode, but one's a mobility a startup that's trying to do some um, pretty gnarly uh, things with fast cars and mountains and things. That's cool. I hope that that goes in about a year. And I'm also helping out with uh, some a healthcare related thing around mental health for teens, which uh, I, I have high hopes for. So that's pretty cool. And an area I'm working on personally right now, and I don't know if it's going to be a book, but I'll, I'll just call it a book now because it's, it's that kind of thinking. Um, is so much of the uh, literature that looks at products, looks at the products. I mean, it's literally people, you know, putting photographs of one of these up and maybe they start to talk about who designed it and, and why, but I'm really interested in what's happening behind the scenes with all the great teams and the great environments and cultures that created the best stuff through time. Mm -hmm. So could be, you know, back to uh, my first job, uh, Hewlett Packard, like what was happening at Hewlett Packard for them to create the HP 35, that first calculator that fit in a shirt pocket, what was happening culturally and organizationally? Um, or for that matter, Porsche in the late 60s and early 70s was this madhouse of crazy innovation and they had no money. And somehow they created these world dominating race cars and street cars. Again, almost no money, uh, but, but something very special was happening there. Or, you know, back to IDEO, the origins of IDEO is a company called David Kelly Design, DKD, which was just, a, again, one of these hothouses and Steve Jobs viewed them as one of his secret weapons. They did the first Apple mouse, Jim Yurchenko. I think the best engineer in Silicon Valley did that at David Kelly Design. So I, I, what I want to get into is um, what are the behaviors and attitudes and mindset and maybe um, value systems that 
drive those teams. Because the more I learn about it, the more I believe that there are some universals. And my belief is that a lot of it actually comes down to it's groups of people who just build stuff and who value building above almost anything else. And by building, um, I am also describing the, you know, having enough slack in the organization. So people just screw around mm-hmm. and that people screw around with impunity and, uh, and don't get fired or, or, or get a bad performance review because they were kind of unproductive for a couple months of the year or every, every Friday they, they disappeared. But those are kind of the cultures that I think mm. create amazing products and experiences for the rest of it. And I think a lot of it is just because, human beings when we do things as a team um and also individually i know you've probably felt this as such a prolific author like you you want to feel some sense of progress and not like you're slipping backward could be daily but especially weekly or monthly you just want to know even if you've even if you create something you know maybe you create a draft and people say oh they have a lot of notes on it that's still progress it may not have been the progress you wanted but you're you're improving you're growing you're learning I think that's what people want. And I think a lot of organizations, especially big companies, kind of pound that out of people because they're looking for ruthless efficiency and trying to hit quarterly earning numbers. Yeah, yeah. I just don't. And ironically, if they let the other kind of modality flourish, they'd be in a lot better shape. So that that's kind of a passion pro- project that I'm, I'm thinking through right now. Sure. We'll see what happens. Yeah. I'm a big believer in Slack. Yeah. Slack for slacking off, for playing around, for allowing, you know, spontaneous serendipitous things to happen, to occur, to do something immediately. You need to have slack. You can't be optimized to the point where you have no slack to allow you to do something at the spur of the moment. So um, yeah, slack is, is important and overlooked and um, essential for the kind of uh, seniors that you're talking about. It really is. I had a foundational experience at HP. I really imprinted on Hewlett Packard. I mean, I can't overemphasize the impact that it had on me as a young engineer, but we had, I was uh, doing R and D on inkjet printers back when they still cost a thousand bucks. You know, now they cost $40, but we had a problem where all the printers in the field stopped printing. And when we investigated it, it was because there's something, there's a, a process called picking the paper or picking it up. And they u- were using these rubber rollers that would grab the paper and take it through the uh, printer. The rubber on them had bloomed. Just one of those things, like after being manufactured in certain uh, temperature conditions, the oils would migrate to the surface and they weren't sticky anymore. They were greasy and they wouldn't pick up paper. That's really bad. So, uh, there's a team who, who created a, a kit that was sent to customers to fix that. So problem solved, except there was this existential issue of the architecture of our printers is fundamentally flawed. We need to do something. And again, I'm a 24 year engineer, 24 year old engineer at this point. And Hewlett Packard, such a great culture, open cubicle farm. I probably sat on a floor with 400 other people, nobody in an office. And I happened to sit over the cubicle wall from the head of the division, the head engineer. So I could hear everything going on. And what happened for the next three or four weeks was all these managers were getting together. And uh, this is pre PowerPoint, but they were putting up, you know, 
uh, physical slides talking about, oh, here's a potential architecture, here's a product roadmap, here are the financials, blah, blah, blah. And I, I remember just thinking like, oh, what's gonna happen to my job or like what's going on, right? Cause I could, it, it was horrible. I was trying to do CAD, but I could hear all this stuff going on over the wall. Uh, it was like a pre-MBA learning experience. But then I never forget it at lunch on a Friday, a uh, couple of our 62 TCs, uh, 62 technical contributor. They were like the gurus in, in HP, which enlightened, it allowed you to become paid like a high level manager without becoming a high level manager. You could just keep engineering. Al was one of the engineers. Al and another engineer called a, an impromptu meeting. They just stood up on, on the desk in their cubicle and shouted across the lab and said, we're doing a demo. And so we all went over there and they had this contraption sitting in the hallway hooked up to a PC. And it, was, it looked like a dog's breakfast. It was just cobbled together parts and early stereolithography. And they had, you know, they had, they were friends with the people in the machine shop, had gotten stuff machined as a favor and done stuff on weekends because of slack time, because they weren't held accountable for every minute. And all they did with this demo was hit the print button and this thing picked paper and did it beautifully and I just remember everybody just cheering because while all the managers and stuff had been off prognosticating and worrying, yeah. Al had just gone and built the damn thing. And that's still the architecture that HP uses today for those inkjet printers. Why? Because of Slack right. and allowing good people to, you know, just discover and build and have serendipity take over. So it, I really think it's the way great products get built. Well, that's a fabulous story and a great, a great illustration of uh, the necessity of playing around and having Slack and um, not optimizing for productivity, but optimizing for innovation and other things. So it was really been great, Diego. Thanks for your four great tools and for um, what you're interested in. I wish you the best success in those other new endeavors. Um, and again, thank you for joining us uh, this week in cool tools. Thank you, Kevin. Yep. We're glad that you enjoyed this issue of the Cool Tools Show and Tell. Just want to remind you that we have some other coolish material on our YouTube channel here. Please subscribe, comment, like. In addition, um, this Cool Tools Show and Tell is also available in an Audible podcast form. You can subscribe to it wherever you subscribe to other podcasts, if you just wanted to listen. And if you're listening, know that there is a visual version of this on our YouTube channel where we're actually showing the tools and um, there's a little bit more of a visual component there. In addition, the same folks that put us, uh, the Cool Tools website out, we also put out a free newsletter every week. It's very, very short. It's one page or less. We recommend six very brief items um, that are very succinct, easy to read. You can deal with it in a couple of minutes. And every week we bring to you the six cool things that we have uncovered and want to share. And it's called Recommendo with one M, recommendo.com. You'll be able to find it there. It's free. Join 50,000 plus other subscribers every Sunday morning. You'll get it in your email box. And it's actually one of the most popular things that we produce. But we do produce other newsletters as well. One of them is called What's in Your Bag. 
We have one that goes out to um, tools and tips for your workshop. So you can get those at our website um, and they're also free. And finally, um, I wanna mention the fact that um, we do have a Patreon and um, this uh, podcast and this vidcast are supported by Patreon supporters. The minimum is a dollar a month. And for that, you get um, an email to ask us anything. We'll respond and um, answer your question if we're able to. There are other higher levels. You can all see those at our Patreon page. And all those links are below right here. So thank you again for being a fan. And um, we'll keep producing stuff if you enjoy it. Thanks. Thank you to this week's patrons, which include Sari Willis, Jamie Ehrman, Brian Brooks, David Ragger, Allison Pescusolio, John Hobson, Alan Lawson, Bill Patrick, Chip Riggs, and John Paul Bosoli. Thank you all.